Welcome to Heroes of Brand Protection, Episode 25. I'm your host, Daniel Shapiro, Vice President of Strategic Partnerships here at RedPoints, the world's fastest growing digital revenue recovery platform with a mission to make the internet safer for both brands and consumers. In this podcast, we will share stories and industry insights from some of the leading experts in brand protection and anti-counterfeiting from many different industries. We are so happy you could join us today, and please check out all of our episodes on www.redpoints.com forward slash podcast. Today, we are thrilled to be speaking with Jane Durden, former Global Director of Trademarks and Brand Protection at Tectonic Industries, also known as TTI. Our guest has it clear. She wants to ride the wave between brand, compliance, and law. She sees this wave as something that changes so quickly and moves at a high speed. With Jane's background in both art and law, she naturally wanted to find a profession that allowed her to use both disciplines. She ended up following her path in the trademark and copyright law because it allowed her to demonstrate both her passions for the law and art and protect them legally. Her experience includes both in-house counsel, traditional law firm work, and please listen to find out how Jane views her brand protection successes. So Jane, thank you for joining us this morning. We're thrilled to have you. You're welcome. Looking forward to speaking with you. Great. Before we get into the, the depth of our conversation this morning, I wanted to just clear up one one question for you, which is when you think of cereal in the morning, do you think of that as soup or is that cereal? So what's your thought process? Oh, when you say cereal at the moment, I'm thinking of the podcast, the very famous podcast about the true crime episode with Adnan Syed, and that's what I'm thinking of. I am not a cereal person. I am a toast and coffee person with a good podcast on the side. <laughs> very good. <laughs> well, listen, that, that's a good answer as well, Rissa. I think that solves it. When you think about your experience over your career and the different kinds of works you've done, is there a particular, I'll say, funny thing or story that you tend to sometimes when you're out having a glass of wine and you share with people about this crazy thing that happened. Is there one of those things in your career that you tend to share? I've got a few, but one of them that that still gives me the giggles is when I first came to the United States, I worked in a law firm in an old building in Pittsburgh and had offices around the edge of the building. And one of the ladies who worked there had been there a long time and she was patent proofer and she'd been given an outside office too. So I'm here my partner who I was working for is across here and this lady is sitting in between and she was venerable and a little hard of hearing. So we like to sort of yell across and she'd listen, but she proved all of the patents. And I came in one day to hear this quite hard of hearing lady proofing at the top of her voice a patent for a really pretty explicit new device that was going to come out on the market in certain shops And so I got to hear the intricacies of a sex toy with all of the claims, and there were 22 of them, at the top of her voice for the morning. (laughs) I couldn't take any phone calls. I couldn't do anything. I had to go out and have a cup of coffee. (laughs) You needed a little sort of debrief time from that. I did. I did. I did to come down from that. It It was hilarious. But she deadpan read all 22 claims straight through. Thank you very much. And went back. 
didn't even didn't even bat an eyelid. Well, I, I guess we need to know if the patent was did it get all the way through and it's locked in. We've got the patent on that particular item. I've got to assume because of the immense amount of effort that went into drafting that patent that it probably did. Okay, no, <laughs> good never, to know that. Good to know that the hard work has been completed. So that's great. So, Jane, to learn a little bit about yourself, tell us what you wanted to be when you grew up, or maybe what you want to be when you grow up. That's a fun question. What I want to be when I grow up is, yeah, I want to, I want to ride this really interesting wave that's going on, the intersection of brands and compliance and law. And when I say this wave, I, I think what this looked like and what this felt like about five years ago is quite different. What this looked like and felt like even earlier this year when we were at the interannual conference is a little bit different than it does at the end of the year as cases sort themselves out and people figure out what the metaverse is. This is a fun, interesting, meaningful industry and I want to be part of it. I did not come out of high school wanting to be a trademark and brand specialist. I had no idea and I rolled out in Australia, you can do this, and I rolled into a combined arts law degree, not really knowing what I wanted to do, but that's okay. So I came out with a double major in fine art and English literature and a law degree concurrently. So it was actually quite natural that I ended up going into trademark law and copyright law. It was the, what do you do with someone who likes words and images and meaning and the legal aspect of it. And so, so that's what I ended up sort of falling into because of this intersection of the two areas of my studies. But it suits me quite well. Uh, I used to interview people and say, if you want to come into our industry, I want you to be able to point to some strange countries on a world map and know where they are. And I want you to be really interested in things like crossword puzzles and word puzzles. And, and that's me. Love to travel love words, love communication and, and meaning and understanding. And so it's, it's been a great industry to be part of. And sort of following up on that a little bit, how, how did you make the journey from Australia to Washington, D.C.? What brought you that direction? Not quite the route you would have expected. I spent two years working in a really large law firm in Australia. Great time, but I was not, I was not ready for it. And wanted to sort of see the world a little bit before I settled down to go and do that. I ended up working in, in Kathmandu, Nepal, in India, and then in Japan, and then came to Pittsburgh in the early 2000s and then fell back into trademarks because I, I happened to make some great connections who found out what my background had been. And I'm so thankful for that. I really am. It's, uh, it was a terrific time to get back into it. And I think having a bit more of that worldview after having travelled and worked overseas for such a long time was a terrific way to come back. And so I came back to work for PPG Industries in Pittsburgh and then circuitously worked with some law firms that worked with them, worked with some vendors and then into a corporate position. So you've been really on both sides of this trademark law from a perspective of the law firm side representing clients or helping clients, and then you've been in-house counsel yeah. protecting your particular brand. Is that correct? That's right. And actually, there's a third side of that with trademark providers as well. So yeah, I've sat on each of the ends of that triangle. Yeah, very interesting. And I think you know, for many brand protection professionals that I've spoken with, some have either 
been in the corporate side and moved over to in-house side, or excuse me, I should say in the public sector in a law firm, and then moving over to a private sector in terms of in corporate. But you have sort of gone forth and back a couple of times, which is interesting <laughs> by itself. And and I know most recently you were with TTI, and maybe for those of us listening this morning who may not know, can you share a little bit about what that company was and what your role was there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so TTI is Tektronic Industries. I worked for Tektronic Industries North America, which is the headquarters down in Fort Lauderdale. And they are a big brand owner in the tool space. And so many of the big tool brands, Milwaukee Tool, Ryobi, AEG, many other brands, and then also in home care products as well. So the Hoover brand, Dirt Devil vacuum cleaners. So everything from ride-on lawnmowers to really incredible technology that helps really large building sites to determine where they need technology and how much of that lithium battery power they need on the worksite to take measures. Fantastic, fantastic set of brands. Very cool. And you were able to do, you did that work from Washington, D.C., or were you in yeah, uh, Fort Lauderdale as well? Definitely a mid to post, dare I say, post-COVID example of, of a team member. And so I came on and it turns out that the rest of the team were actually very international. And while the headquarters is down in Fort Lauderdale, a lot of the team members weren't there. And so I've got a teenage daughter still in high school here and wanted to be able to be nimble enough to be able to get around and travel to the other sites. And there just didn't seem to be the same need as there used to be years ago, right, to sit in the same place and so the company was great and agreed for, for my role to be remote, which was terrific. So I spent a lot of time on Teams calls with a lot of different time yes. zones over the last little while, like we all do. Right. But I think it's really been fantastic because there's not that restriction of being in the office and feeling like you have to time that for office hours. Yeah, that, that's probably like a whole nother podcast, right? The discussion of totally. how corporations and big business are sort of solving or thinking about what happens next. You know, yeah, we did what we did in the pandemic first, what we do post pandemic. And, you know, will, will there be much change or did this find out that there's some productivity things that work well and maybe some yeah. collaboration issues that probably could use a little improvement from an in-office space, right? I mean, a combination of thinking about those things, but. We'll save that for another discussion at some point. Good idea. Great discussion. What challenges do you see in the brand protection world from a technology perspective as you think about from your experience? What happens in 2023 and beyond? Do you think it keeps moving at this high speed that we're moving in terms of whether it's laws or, or marketplaces or social media sites or the metaverse continuing to push the envelope on trademark? Yeah, I, I think the trend has been volume and breadth and our ability or dare I say inability to keep up with that volume. You know, when I first got into brand protection at PPG in the mid 2000s, we were talking about brand protection on the internet and we only had the main, the main top level domain names, the dot coms and, and the rest of them in early 2000s. It was one thing then to keep up with it. it was one thing to have a provider that said, I can, search the internet and and find these and this this is just impossible these days right the breadth of possibilities of where your brand or a similar mark might turn up 
and also, dare I say it, the breadth of the ways that malicious players are now playing with brands has just infinitely blown up. And I think that's the major problem. The trend really has to be to be able to be quite strict about putting strategies in place that say, here are the things we will take action against. And here's the kind of budget that needs to be assigned to this type of activity. And business and other people, here are the things which we will not take action against for the following reasons. And I think that's something that businesses have found. Some businesses do very, very well and some businesses find quite difficult. I know I felt like I was doing a a sort of a split role. Half of my role was determining what we would take action on, when and how, and and all of the the details of, of evidence and support for that. And the other half was internal, was taking either individual phone calls or working with groups across the business to explain why, no, we're not going to take action against everything because we can't and we don't have the budget for it. I remember, again, back at PPG, I once had a phone call from a brand manager who had been at the gym on the treadmill and as she was on the treadmill, she was marching away watching the Powerpuff Girls kids TV show and on the top of their beds they had the letter PPG, Powder Puff Girls, PPG Industries. And she wanted to know at that time, can we take action? We want to go and take down this look. They're using the same letters that we have, right? And it's cute and it's funny, but that type of inquiry came through multiple times a week in the business. And so that internal education around brand awareness, but also enforcement and protection awareness was really, really important, or you end up with no budget and no time. Yeah. And that, of course, I think is the challenge, right? As as the breadth of the challenges in the world of trademark today for many brands is how do you manage that threat at the same time managing resources slash budget, you know, human capital or, or dollar resources, whichever it may be. We were just talking with our chief technology officer and today, just as a note, you know, we're bringing in somewhere around 30 to 50 million listings every day on behalf of our clients. And as you can imagine, the volume is enormous and people prioritize that action just like you described because it can't be everywhere in most cases, but the challenge is it may be out there everywhere, right? So that's that balance you were speaking of. And just when you think you're on top of it and you've got a sense of the breadth of what it is new technology, new potentials, new opportunities, and new threats turn up. So we'd just done exactly that same project of looking across online marketplaces, and that in itself is still very, very difficult. And we dive into the world of the metaverse and NFTs and NFT marketplaces. And, you know, again, it feels like the early 2000s where we're having to explain what a top-level domain name is, what is possible and how you can string and where brands might turn up. They're doing a lot of education about what is an NFT, what is the potential and what are the threats. And that is, you know, we're just chipping away at this. Over the space of three weeks, I watched one of the NFT marketplaces blow up with one of the brands within the portfolio Not all of them were problematic. Some of them were for 3D. There were NFTs for 3D printable parts that were compatible 
with tools. Again, do you take action? Do you not? But, you know, again, I we're just chipping away at it and just starting to look. And it was that same intersection of potential volume and potential issues, but that real need for continuous education with internal stakeholders so that they didn't feel as though they they needed to feel as though they understood enough to give informed instructions to us or to be guided by us in the legal department. Yeah, it makes total sense. And when you think about from your experience, having been again, both in sort of corporate law and in-house counsel, how do you see today, you know, IP law firms, you know, working with, whether it's with brands or service providers like ourselves, how do you see that working together in this larger challenge that we have out there today? Yeah. So I think it's absolutely critical. That's the triangle that I keep coming back to, right? Corporations are never going to have enough internal resources, are never going to have enough space to be able to have dedicated people with pinpoint expertise in in all of the different issues that come up. And so they need absolutely a stable of fantastic outside counsel and outside advisors to be able to work with. And I think brand protection is a really interesting area. Some of it is legal and some of it is not legal. And so this position, the need for service providers in this area is absolutely critical. What I found really interesting is how deep or maybe sometimes how how not deep how shallow some of the expertise of outside counsel has been. So certainly there's there's areas of specialty. And so I see a lot of law firms really doing a fantastic job in the brand protection area. And these tend to be law firms that are focused on trademarks, on advertising law, on marketing claims. This is quite an interesting growth area Just because somebody has an IP department does not make them necessarily a very good brand protection advisor as outside counsel. I think that's an interesting learning. Certainly, brand protection as an area of specialty is much more detailed and much more complex um, than it was even five years ago. And so really looking for that expertise. I certainly see this expertise coming with some of the great providers in the industry at the moment that have the space and the expertise and the access to data and the ability to really focus on it, to therefore understand a lot of the array of the issues that come up. Yeah, for sure. I think that thinking about your answer, I think today in-house counsel certainly needs, and so do law firms and marketplaces and, you know, social media, I think there's a need for collaboration, right? Greater and greater need for collaboration, because I think today the size, the scale, the speed, the changes are at such a rate in where the day of someone being able to solve all your problems doesn't really exist. And honestly, business has limits. There are limits to resources. There's limits to human capital, right? All those things. And some level of collaboration or increasing the level of collaboration is probably the value of success tomorrow. I was thinking about how do you pull those things together, right? Yeah. So I'll give you a a really discreet example of that. That's exactly what, what I was working on. So if you think about what an online brand protection provider needs to do, they're responsible for all of the information and access to data for identifying and thinning down that list of potential threats 
that information needs to go across to the IP owner. But for the provider to go and take action, where it's really, really useful, they need to understand your IP. And so for me, what I was trying to, to set up very simply was if I've got a vendor that's providing online brand protection services to me, how can I really simply provide the data associated with my trademark portfolio, my copyright portfolio, and my design patent portfolio to them so that they can access that information immediately and take action on the basis of those trademarks and other, other IP formats? What was previously happening was they were having to come back and say, do you want us to take action? Yes. Could you please tell us the trademarks on, on which we can take action? Well, let's take out that question. Let's give the right access to the right people at the right time so that that group of people can collaborate and work together more effectively. And God forbid, let's make sure that nobody's paying for data again when that data exists between that relationship. And I think that's exactly where this industry needs to go. It needs to go into sort of circles and patterns of, of collaborative re relationships where each of the individuals are bringing value, but they're bringing value around a shared platform of information so that they can do it quickly, effectively, and more cheaply. Yeah. And then let me ask you this. When you think of in, in your most current role, I guess, with Tektronics, what are the risks associated with having, you know, counterfeit or fake components in the world of electronics in terms of what does that pose to the company from a risk level perspective? Yeah. So look, with, with all goods that are, are consumer goods, you've got a range of, of risks that, that exist. Sort of dare I say that the base level risk is that there's consumer confusion and that you're drawing business, business is drawn away from yours. When you're dealing with products that are being shipped internationally and made and are based on a lithium battery platform, this is something that TTI takes exceptionally seriously. And they want to make sure that there is no confusion about the fact that good lithium batteries or, or good products take time and resources to, to manufacture and that consumers need to be aware that these products are going to be safer than counterfeit or dupe products. And so you've got sure. sort of that, that big swing as it goes down. I think one of the risks that exists right in the middle is a little bit esoteric and bear with me. I've got a teenage daughter, 16-year-old. She buys a lot of things online, as they all do. Apparently it's with my credit card, but she buys them online. Yeah, well, that, that works better. It, it does, doesn't it? Apparently it's great consumer patterns. <laughs> But what's been interesting at the moment is, of course, what turns up 90% of the time with her. These are non-name brand products she's buying. She doesn't buy name brand products and, and clothes anymore. She buys what I call dupe products. They're copies of them, cheaper copies of them that turn up. Don't come after me. Yes, we've got dupe products coming into my house. And I think that's actually a huge part of what big brand owners are also making sure they need to take a stand because if we don't, this consumer expectation that dupes are an okay part of the marketplace will continue to be perpetuated. And so I think you've got these sort of multiple risks that are associated with products and that is something that in the brand protection field as a brand protection professional, you are constantly reminding and constantly balancing back each of those areas, damage to the business, honestly damage in the marketplace and consumer potential damage 
that we're responsible for making sure that we continually are alerting consumers and and other officials to, uh, and this is the, the main problems with counterfeits. Yeah, and I think as you described, some of that could damage the product. Some of that, you know, when I think about your description of your teenage daughter, I have a, a daughter who is in her late 20s, but a consumer of product. And I always worried about her because she buys everything online, but specifically things like makeup, things that I worry about, you know, where it's potentially harmful, right? And we don't know where some of that product is or if it's stored properly or if it's not even got safe product in it, right? So we worry about all those things. But as you mentioned, for your specific issue, certainly the risks are out there. I did want to ask you a question. Uh, Recently, we did a podcast with Jennifer Hanks, who's the Director of Brand Protection at the American Apparel and Footwear Association. And she wanted to ask you a question because she hadn't met you before, but she wanted to know from you, what is your value or proposition or thoughts on giving back to your both professionally and personally in your in your world? I love that question. I think this is this is huge. My approach has been that I think it's really important that each of us gives back to our industry. My way of doing this has been through mentoring. I ended up in the position that are doing really interesting work because of people that had taken time to work with me and to work with other people in in the industry to enrich the people and the industry. And I think think that's really, really important. So I spent a lot of time doing two things. Yes, mentoring individuals to help them understand and be as, as interested and delighted in the industry as I am, but also making sure that through the work that I've done through the International Trademark Association's Trademark Administrators Committee, that we are starting to break down some of the barriers of the expectation of background. Bear with me here. Traditionally, a lot of this work has been seen to be legal work and therefore an attorney needs to do it. I beg to differ and I think we all understand there is immense work that needs to be done. Some of it is legal work and requires a law degree, but not all of it is. And so I've worked really hard to work with others in the industry to actually start to look at what are the right types of people, who needs to work in teams, how do we put the right kinds of teams together and how do we help foster people's careers in this industry, whether they have a law degree or not. I happen to have one from Australia, but not in the United States. And so I'm fairly passionate about this and how this works. The final part of that question, I think, is, As we all work in brands, we need to be thinking much more around a discussion I think that's really been rising and I'm so glad, which is the role and responsibility of brands when we're working with brand owners. How do we help them? I had a great conversation with someone at a large power company yesterday. How are we thinking about ESG in brand management? How are we thinking about diversity and inclusion in brand management? And yes, We're doing brand protection. No, we're not the brand managers, maybe, but we have a role in making sure that sustainability and environmental protection and diversity and inclusion are topics that are continuously considered as we take our part in managing and protecting brands. I think it's a really important advancement in that industry. 
That's a great answer. I think I was going to ask you a, a follow-up question, but I think you did such a wonderful job. I was going to ask you, you know, sort of what advice would you give young people? But I think in your answer, you not only talked about the value proposition of mentoring someone, but, you know, the kinds of things people should be looking for toward the future and thinking about. And I think that... I, I've got a really quick answer about what yeah. people, young people should think about. Sure. Young people need to stay on top. They, they need to bring the value that we're assuming that they're bringing. They need to stay on top of all of the technology and they need to, to make sure that they are explaining that and sharing that throughout organizations. Yes, when I worked on the Metaverse product team, absolutely. I had a group of 23 to 26-year-olds that, that were working with me. And yes, they knew way more than I did and I was thankful for it. So stay on <laughs> top of technology. Don't assume that what you need to know is the, the sort of the full, you, you don't need to be a high court or Supreme Court judge on this. Younger people in our industry are extremely valuable because they are the ones that are they're our latest consumers, they're our latest users of technology, and it's a really important, rich part of the way that we are working in this area. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful advice. Let me ask you a final question. After we released your podcast, the, the person whom we're going to interview next is Piotr Strazowski from the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Development, and he works specifically on illicit goods, i.e. counterfeits. I don't know if you know him, but his organization spends a lot of time really making an impact, working along with brands and in multiple countries around the world. What would be one thing we'd want you'd want us to learn from Pietro as we're talking to him about him? So I think Pietro's position, I, I, I think, would be really interesting. What one thing that I know quite clearly from working for an international company like TTI is, I think there are different approaches, there are different problems. And there are different cultural approaches to the problems that occur about counterfeits and brand protection around the world. I'd be really interested to hear from his OECD position how he sees what are the commonalities and what are the differences that occur in approaches to counterfeits. So right now I'm seeing a difference in the way China is approaching counterfeits as to how Vietnam is. Vietnam is seeing the potential to bring businesses in for manufacturing that have had a lot of troubles in China. The way that Vietnam is doing it is really doubling down on the anti-counterfeit protection mechanisms in the country. Still a little bit confusing, but really, really they're doing a good job of, of a broad protection program to encourage business to come in. Very, very different than what we're seeing in some other countries where it's quite hard to take action. So I'd love to hear about this international view. The, the OECD also has an interesting perspective where they're looking at the financial impact to governments and businesses in different regions. And I think this macro view about the impact of counterfeits rather than the micro view that we often see from inside companies would be really interesting. Yeah, wonderful. We will ask him that question and we'll learn about that from him when we speak to him next Jane, it's been wonderful to speak with you. Thank you so much. I think I learned a lot listening to you today, and I think people will be engaged and happy to hear some of your thoughts about how we're seeing brand protection for tomorrow. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Daniel. Great to talk. Well, Jane, it was very interesting to learn about your journey, your insights in the brand protection space. 
I'd like to highlight for everyone a couple key takeaways from our conversation. Number one, the current challenge is to keep up with the volume of new types of intellectual property infringements and the ever-growing channels in which they appear. Number two, brand protection success relies on the combination between the brands, law firms, service providers, and marketplace. Nobody can do it by themselves. That's it for us today. If you like what you heard, check out our next inspiring personal story from another hero of brand protection. You can follow us on all of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, as well as Twitter and LinkedIn. Make it a good day.